Welcome to Rigo's Business Review, where we bring you the latest in leadership, business, and tech. I'm your host, Carl Rigo. Join us each week as we share unexpected insights and underreported stories from the world of business to inform, uplift, and inspire, and make you think. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. We're delighted this episode we've got an incredible guest, Adam Coffey, who is who spent 20 years as a president of three national private equity-owned service companies. He's known for building high-performing cultures and for executing a buy-and-build strategy. Adam is highly sought after by private equity and is considered an expert in running industrial service businesses. He's a former GE executive, an alumnus of UCLA, and a veteran of the United States Army. Uh, recent accolades include being named one of Orange County, California's most influential leaders. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here, and uh, hello to all your listeners out there, Carl. So thanks so much for joining us. First, Firstly, I know you're quite a busy guy. Is there anything you'd like to add to that introduction? No, yeah, I think that, that about covers it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm no mystery. I'm, uh, I'm a guy who spent 35 years working in service companies. I've held every job you can hold in a service company. I started my career driving a truck. You know, and at, at the end of the day, I worked my way up and then spent 21 years as a CEO building three platforms for eight different PE sponsors. My average exit career multiple of invested capital batting average is, is just over 4x multiple of invested capital. And uh, it's been a great career. It's been a lot of fun, you know, and uh, happy to be here. Great. And so I know you've got, so we're talking about your, your first book today, The Private Equity Playbook, Management's Guide to Working with Private Equity. So I know you're quite a busy guy. And uh, since the time you wrote the first book, uh, what, is, what are you doing now? Well, you know, just recently, late last fall, I made a strategic pivot. The books were a big piece of that. Um, but I pivoted from being a full-time serial CEO, building companies for private equity, to being a consultant. I, I run a company now called the CEO Advisory Guru. Uh, and, you know, my premise was um, after 21 years of being a CEO, I was a little bit bored running one company. And I believe I can impact multiple companies at a time. I do that through what I call active management, active participation. So I'm a CEO coach, CEO whisperer. Uh, I, I check all the boxes the PE guys are looking for, the quarterly board meetings, the monthly reviews, things like that. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm much more engaged. I'm talking to my CEOs weekly. I'm with them in person monthly. Uh, and I become kind of a part of their leadership team. And because I'm an operator, I do mm -hmm. it from an operator's perspective. Having spent 20 years working with private equity, I know what their needs are and how to feed those needs. And so a lot of times I'm working with founders who've transitioned but have never worked with PE before. You know, or I'm, I'm working with someone who's never done a buy and build before. You know, so there's there's a, a lot of different ways I can bring 21 years worth of experience to, to bear. And, and that's what I'm doing. And I'm loving it, having a good time. Great. Well, and that you just touched on. So one of the one of the reasons I was so keen to speak with you is that you like me, you started your career as an operator. As we both describe ourselves as operators, you worked in industry, hands on leadership management positions in different sorts of companies. And then you moved in uh, to the private equity world, similar to myself. So we had uh, several other things in common just from checking out your background. So we both we both worked as engineers, uh, have both both worked in healthcare, you at, at GE, me at Johnson & Johnson, both ended up getting certified in Six, Six Sigma along the way, We're both investors. And on a personal note, we both lived in that uh, Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex area, me in the, in the uh, 
early to late 80s, which I would say was the heyday of country music. Back then, I was quite young, but I enjoyed being down there. And uh, yeah, so we're... Uh, well, we were both here in Texas at the same time because I was <laughs> in the United States Army stationed at Fort Hood, you know, at that time, early 80s. Right. Wow. So so there's some things in common. And I, I, I do, um, like I said, the main kind of arc of your career is that coming from an operator. So as an operator and then moving in. So shall we, oh, before we dive into that. So um, we're, we're here to talk about your book, The Private Equity Playbook, like I said, Management's Guide to Working with Private Equity, uh, mainly, but in your career. And what what was it that inspired you to write that book? You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I was walking the dog with my wife and, you know, I'd been talking about doing a book for a long time and, and she uh, she just pushed me, kept kicking me saying, you know, you just need to do this. And so I'll give her the credit for being the inspiration because I think all of us walk around with a book in our head yes. and many of us, it never comes out. But but really the 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 thesis for me was private equity is just a black box to so many business people in the world. And, you know, when I first went into private equity, there was fewer than a thousand firms. There was less than a trillion in assets under management. Today, there's five trillion in assets under management. There's 6,000 PE firms. And, you know, there's 1.5 trillion in, in committed capital looking for companies to buy right this second. And this year alone, 2022, first year ever, more than 50% of all global M&A activity will include private equity on one side of the table or the other. And yet, I think if I went to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport and I sat out with a table and anybody that looked like a business person, if I gave them a simple 10-question quiz on private equity, I think 95% of business people would flunk it. They, they know private equity in that they've heard of the term. Maybe they've watched you know, Shark Tank on TV or something, but but they really don't know how it works or what it is or, or what its needs are. And so the private equity playbook was really written to demystify the black box and to not, you know, every chapter could be a deep dive in a separate book. This was meant to be a cursory overview. What is private equity? How does it work? Why should I care as a business person? And then, you know, how do I work with private equity? You know, should I find myself in one of those situations where 50% of all the M&A activity includes private equity and I just got bought or I just got hired to come in, you know, what, 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 what now? And so four hours, you know, on an airplane was my, my vision. A person could, could knock out this book and learn a tremendous amount about private equity. Yes. It's 21 years worth of CEO cliff notes. Yeah, and it comes across that way. I would say just a plug for the book. It, it's it's super readable. If it was one of my nighttime reads, just a it was it was a very quick read. Uh, and I, one of the things I really liked about the book, I mean, I, I I thought it was great overall, but I appreciated this dual perspective that much of the book is written from. And in terms of the perspective, if you talk about uh, whether someone is, is this hypothetical Josh, who's the CEO of a middle market company and is contemplating selling his business to private equity, or you talk about also the perspective of Rose who is a Fortune 500 mid-level career executive. She's thinking, uh, she's starting to get calls from these private equity firms and recruiters looking for CEO and COO sorts of roles in the portfolio companies of those firms. So I thought that was the, that that dual track perspective I thought was really helpful. And obviously at a certain point, the tracks merge once you're in the, the, the PE-owned firm running a company in the portfolio. But uh, uh, what was it that kind of inspired you to, to take that approach to, to telling the story of the book? Well, so I'm the original Rose, you know, R R Rose as a name is my daughter, you know, she's mm -hmm. my, my nine year old daughter. And, uh, and so I used her name so that she could, she could forever be 
infamous in my book. <laughs> um, but, you know, but I'm the original Rose. I was the Fortune 500 up and coming executive. I'm getting calls from recruiters. And at the time I'm contemplating making the transition, I didn't know what private equity was. I, I was chasing money and title. And, and so, you know, there I know just in today's world, given the volume and the number of companies owned by private equity, that there's this intense need for talent. And so the PE firms go to the Fortune 500 world. They pick off kind of mid-level talent, you know, rising stars, you know, general manager, you know, level and up. And, you know, th there's a lot of opportunity there. And I, I and I think people have a lot of comfort working in the 500 world, you know, Fortune 500 world. Hey, you know, everybody knows the name on my business card. And I, and I think I've arrived. Uh, and, and yet, if you take as a percent of the total employee base, how many employees in the Fortune 500 world earn a seven-figure income? You know, it's really, really, really small. Uh, but if you consider how many people in the middle market private equity-backed world earn a seven-figure income, it's really, really big you know, by comparison you mm -hmm. know, as a percentage. So there's a desire to go get talented people, and those talented people need to understand why they would want to come into this world of smaller companies where people may not have seen the logo on your business card and why you would want to make that transition and, and do it. And then from a Josh perspective, hey, listen, you know, there are uh, the majority of companies in the world where wealth is created start out as small businesses. They're founded by entrepreneurs. And at some point in today's world, everyone wants to exit. And right now, private equity is buying more than 50% of all founder-owned companies on the planet when it's time to transition. And so, again, it, I felt that you have a, a, a conversion of these two worlds that are happening in private equity. You have founders transitioning to private equity backed. You've got Fortune 500 talent coming in oftentimes to support the entrepreneur or to work with the entrepreneur. So it's a convergence of these two worlds crashing together in a middle market PE backed kind of company. And, and so I wanted to cover both perspectives. They do ultimately merge, but they're distinctly separate paths that bring people there. Yes, great. So we, we may uh, just jump ahead in our kind of running order here. So while we're on the subject of private equity, we are going to get to your background and, and your career arc, because that's fascinating to me. But while we're on the subject of private equity, um, from your perspective, just if the headlines kind of what, what is what is private equity about from your perspective? So I, I see private equity as a tool and they see me as a tool. So let me explain that. If I'm an entrepreneur and I'm growing a business I get to an inflection point where I want to monetize my asset, but I don't necessarily want to stop going. I want to keep running, but I need institutional capital to come in and, and help me then accelerate my growth trajectory. Um, you know, I, 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 I need somebody to fulfill that need. Private equity for a founder is a tool. The, the, the tool is capital. They bring capital. They bring expertise. They bring uh, you know, relationships with lenders, you know, things that I don't have access to as a small company. And, and so I see private equity as a tool. Private equity on the flip side has trillions of dollars that's been entrusted to them by their limited partners. And they have to deploy that capital. They have to earn, you know, a, a market beating return. And in order to, to raise the next fund and, and to get more capital from limited partners. And so they need to deploy capital when they're looking to deploy capital. They're going to deploy it in a company, but they're really not buying companies. They're backing management teams. And so if you think of it from each side, 
you have one side of the table that needs capital to grow, that needs debt financing, needs relationships, needs some potential influx of human talent, you know, uh, in order to reach a new level. And then at the same time, the people deploying the capital, they're buying companies, but they're backing people. And so each side has similar needs, a little bit different, but by working together, both sides are fulfilling their needs. And, and so that's how I look at, at private capital. Great. Okay. And so that's a, that's a, a um, really useful kind of overview of the industry from your perspective, from kind of where you've where you've come from. And so you, you touched on earlier about some headline observations, but any other uh, trends you see in the industry now? And for example, you just mentioned, so I, I follow the industry pretty closely as well. And I, I do some capital raising deals and acquisition vehicles and things like that. And one of the, uh, so there was a quote on uh, Bloomberg where one of the multi-billion dollar fund managers said, look, there's, as you said, as we know, there's no shortage of capital out there. There's just a shortage of leadership to deploy it into. And that's just what you said there, that the, what you touched on was that the funds are backing management and, and leadership. So, one, would you agree with that, that take that there's no shortage of capital out there? There's just a shortage of leaders to, leadership to deploy it into? And then, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it's absolutely, you know, literally when I wrote the private equity playbook only three and a half years ago, you know, there, there, there was, uh, you know, 3.4 trillion in assets under management. I, th I think I might have mentioned 2.8 trillion in the book because I was using year old data at the time was the late latest published today. It's over 5 trillion. I mean, the influx of capital is just tremendous, partially because for limited partners, you know, you're, you're in a limited partners, typically pension funds uh, and, uh, you know, large private families, um, college, uh, you know, university endowments, you know, largest sources of, of capital. But there's nowhere they can go to get the kind of returns that they need. And private equity continues to deliver those types of returns. So the, the money is just pouring into the asset cl class. We are flooded with capital. And a as a result, multiples being paid are at record highs. You know, a, a, it used to be that the same company in a stable given industry would get multiple appreciation at different inflection points or different sizes. You know, a $10 million EBITDA company starts to get a premium multiple to something less. A $50 million starts to get a premium to those that were 10. A $100 million EBITDA company gets, you know, another rise in multiples. But today, you know, a company that I was running that somebody bought in 2015 for an eight times multiple, I sold for a 14 times multiple, today would trade for an 18 times multiple. And that's literally driven primarily by the influx of capital. So prices are high, multiples are, are high. And a, as a result, um, it, it's getting more difficult for private equity to deploy the capital and to hit the return thresholds that, uh, that they're known for. Yes. Well, even in the part of the market I operate in, I do, I do a fair number of venture deals and some growth deals. And, and they, with the entry of SoftBank several years ago, they talked about capital as a weapon because then a lot of the venture capital firms had to start moving earlier stage to, to, in, in the company development cycle to get more what they saw as more reasonable valuations as well because there's more capital after looking for yield. Well, that's so, a good point. That's a good point because I'm seeing that real time. People that used to buy things with 15 million of EBITDA and they would kind of go from 15 to 50, they're reaching down to 10. And now you've got firms who have been created for the sole purpose because there's not enough companies of that size to feed the middle market, you know, mainstream private equity guys. You know, there, there's firms out there that are going zero to one. They're going out there buying five or six small companies to create $10 million of EBITDA to sell 
to the person who's reaching down from 15 to 10. So uh, a lot of, of, of uh, disruption kind of in the marketplace, you know, it's, ha- it's happening really quickly. Yes. And, and, uh, and I'm seeing it everywhere. Very, very interesting. So one of the reasons I got into private equity, I mean, I've been an investor for over 20 years. And, and like yourself, I, I had I developed some good experience in uh, improving business operations and say operational improvement, things like that. And I wanted to combine the two interests. And that's kind of part of why I moved into the industry. And one of the one of the kind of deal mentors I follow says, if you want to build real wealth in business, it's through, through two ways, mainly through equity and transactions. And, and and that's at least what you said in your book from gather from your book. That's part of how you did it in terms of, you know, investing alongside being an equity holder and then guiding the company through to, to increasing the value and then taking it to some transaction where that's liberated and it's recognized and, and you, that you have some value added and, and, and concretized there. That's kind of fascinating from my perspective. So just to come back really quickly, and I want to circle back to your, your background, but we talk about the, what sort of leadership is required for these private equity portfolio companies when we talk about so the shortage I, of leadership. Let's yeah. understand first the magnitude of growth that has to be achieved to hit the multiples or to, to hit the, the return thresholds that people are modeling in today's private equity world. Um, it, you know, a lot of, first of all, buyout funds are where majority of the money is in private equity. They're not buying startups. This isn't venture capital. You're not going from a dollar a profit to $2 a profit mm-hmm. and saying, woohoo, I, I just grew by a hundred percent. You know, what your focus is to take a mature business with with a history of revenue and earnings, oftentimes every company that I went in to run had already been in existence for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So these companies have been around for a long time, they're in mature industries. And as a result of that, the growth trajectories are usually single digit. And the law of 72 in investing says, if you're getting a 10% annual return you know, or, or annual uh, um, interest rate, it takes 7.2 years to double a company in size. Well, private equity firm needs a three to four X multiple of invested capital. And in order to do that, you've got to grow at 25 to 30% compound annual growth rate. So when private equity is coming into a company, you've got a, an entrepreneur or a, a leadership team that's been growing for years at about you know 8%. And all of a sudden, the first out of the gate thing they need to do is bend that growth curve and get that company on a 30% growth trajectory and hold it. And if you can do that, the company doubles in size in, in two and a half years instead of instead of 10 years, you know, or at 10% seven years. And if you continue to hold it in the typical five-year hold period, the company will quadruple in size, you know, a, as a result. So private equity is looking for management teams that have the ability to take an asset they invest in, bend the curve and run and run because they now have a supply of capital, which really means debt relationships. And sure. you know, and, and then an influx of some talent, some help from consultants and thinking. And so it's, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs sell or a lot of, a lot of founders sell and think, okay, I took some chips off the table. Now it's time to just chill out when really it's time to amp your game up. And so what I've learned is, you know, why is there 6,000 private equity firms on the planet? Because for limited partners, this is where they get the best returns. And so what I tell people is private equity represents the epitome of investing. It's like a professional sport and you are working with the best athletes on the planet. So if you're a founder or you're a a Fortune 500 transitioning executive and you can get into a a private equity type environment, you can grab their coattails and you can ride along with them without paying carried interest, without paying any of their management fees. 
and you can generate extreme wealth for yourself. And, and so by becoming a rollover investor or an investor in the companies that, that you're running or working with, you know, just tremendous returns. And, and so the game is very intense and it can piss a lot of people off. But at the same time, you're playing a professional sport and every professional athlete out there still goes to training camp and they still practice you know, before they play the game. And so it's an intense world to be a champion. And in finance, this is the epitome. This is the professional leagues to go work with a, a good private equity firm. And there's a lot of growth potential. Awesome. So uh, Adam, what we're, we're, I'm going to, I mentioned I have one or two kind of potentially controversial questions. Or so let, let's segue to, the, to that now. So basically, uh, I, we talked a bit about in your book, you talk about rather that one of the things that drives the, the imperative for that pace and that inflection point in bending that growth curve is that the one of the ways that the, the private equity funds are, are measured or measure themselves is by IRR, the internal rate of return, which is time dependent. So the quicker they can deliver the results, the better the, the better that the, the, they perform against KPIs, for example. Lots of other reasons too. But so just stepping outside for a minute, just to say, stepping back for a minute, uh, the private equity industry uh, has its share of critics and skeptics, uh, maybe partly because of the, the focus on time and things. What would you say to those who outsiders who accuse some PE funds of short-termism, things like saying, well, there's a, there's this uh, narrative out there that some PE firms just simply take good companies, load them up with debt, and then engage in asset stripping and some value destruction and things like that. Obviously, the, 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 that does not seem to be the sort of activity you're involved in from, from the, the stories in your book and things. But how can private equity funds kind of get things right where they're creating more value for longer term or, or for the other stakeholders and then maybe destroyed Depending on the approach so, I so I think, unfortunately, and, and wrongly, I, I think that when people do hear about private equity in the news, what they hear about are are the negative aspects uh, of private equity. And it and is often the case with news in general today. Good news isn't a good story. Bad news is a good story. And so let's, you know, let's attack some guy who was a billionaire, you know, who ran for office and and, uh, you know, let's take him down. I, I think that there's a, a lot of uh, focus on negatives. L l let's be honest. There are 6,000 PE firms on the planet. And anytime you have a universe of 6,000 firms with $5 trillion, there are going to be good companies, mediocre companies, and what I'll call, I hate to use the word bad, but there'll be bad or less than optimal type companies. But you have to also keep in mind that an asset class that private equity also invests in is distressed assets. And so there are times you know, where a, a, a company may be on the verge of bankruptcy and someone comes in and picks up you know, the company out of the ashes and, and then sells off some of the assets or does different things. I mean, there are some private equity firms that have funds that just specialize in buying troubled assets. And and sometimes they can fix them and sometimes they can't. So from my perspective, my experience, and that was one of the things I wanted to get out in the book, mm -hmm. was just the fact that, hey, my experience is different. 21 years, I built three companies. Two of them hit billion-dollar enterprise values. I was hiring during recessions. You know, at my last company, CoolSys, I had 250 openings for HVAC technicians on any given day. You know, if there were 250 people that were qualified looking for a job, boy, could I employ them. My hindrance to organic growth was getting enough technicians and enough trucks to service the, the needs of the customers. So my experience is, first of all, I, 
I focus on building strong cultures. I focus on taking care of employees. I want to create the industry leader. I want to create the place where an employee wants to stay for their entire career. And what I've found is that profit and employees, taking care of employees, are not mutually exclusive. You, you can do both. Matter of fact, I'm a lazy CEO. So what I mean by that is if I build a good company with a very strong culture, I get an engaged workforce, they work hard, revenues you know, result. You know, Revenue rains from the sky. The secret to building a, a world-class service company is focus on people and culture. And then they you know, focus on customers. Customers love being taken care of. They give us more stuff. Revenue rains from the sky. And what I found is if you build a good company, it's easier to run. It earns more than a bad company. You know, think of a new car driving down the road. You know, today's world, no matter who makes it, they're pretty reliable. You buy a 1970s clunker and you're going to be working on it as much as you're driving it. And so if you build a good company, there's less problems behind you that you need to focus on. And you focus more of your energy and time on growth and on bending the curve and riding the wave, you know, up higher. So I like to build good companies, strong cultures, take care of people. And most people would think the exact polar opposite. And so some people have good experiences with private equity, some have bad. Usually it's because they're unprepared and they don't understand private equity. They don't know what the needs are. And as a result of that, their outcomes are hit or miss 50-50. But my experience is, you know, most private equity firms, especially larger ones out there today, really care, you know, about about things like the environment, ESG and yeah. DEI, and they want to be good stewards. You know, their their limited partners who are giving them all this capital want them to be good stewards to people and the cities in which they they operate and, and the world in general around them. So my experience living within the confines of private equity very different than what I hear about on the news. Great. Well, and I, I love the the passion, enthusiasm, and, and employee engagement and inspiration is something near and dear to my heart as well. And I wholeheartedly uh, agree with what you mentioned there in terms of if you get that right, then much of the rest of running the business it, it run it's much easier to, to to get things done and to keep people and to make the customers delighted and and, and those sorts of things. It, uh, absolutely. So you just touched on this. Maybe you may have some other uh, comments around this commentary. You mentioned. ESG, environmental, social, and governance practices, and talk about sustainability, things like that. How, how do you see ESG factoring into some of the deals uh, and or conversations that you've been having? So it, it's, it's definitely permeating deeper into the world of, of private equity. We saw it first with the larger funds. So larger limited partners who are deploying a lot more capital have a, a, a very, had a very early conscious focus on wanting to be ESG friendly and wanted to be able to go back to their representatives wherever that capital was coming from. Maybe it was pension funds or, or university endowments, you know, but they wanted to be able to go back and tell the story about, hey, we're not only deploying your capital, but we're deploying it in a in a environmentally, you know, ESG type friendly way. So that you can go back to your constituencies and say, hey, we're not a part of a problem. We're a part of a solution. And, and so you, you, anything that happens first, it, it hits the bigger firms and then it starts to work its way down, call it into into. And I'm seeing it daily now in what I would call the mainstream middle market. And, and I would say that, uh, you know, eventually it'll permeate the entire industry. But today, real, you know, small shops tend to be more focused simply on return and, and you know, MOIC and IRR. Yeah. Um, 
but it, it started with the big boys. It's worked its way down. You know, it's permeating the entire industry. And so everyone is conscious now that, that there's a, a, a greater responsibility to investing capital than simply generating a, a return. Great. Okay. H- having done all that scene setting, which is considerable, and I think it's really uh, helpful and, and uh, informative and insightful for, for our listeners, I want to take a step back and, and talk a bit more about you and how you ended up doing the work you're doing and kind of the, the main uh, the arc of your career. So if you want to start from the beginning or whichever point you're, you're comfortable starting with, tell us a bit about yourself and, and how you came to, to, do, sure. to, to achieve the results you did and be in the industry here. You know, I always talk about four things in my life that bring me where I am today, and I'll do them briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, n- n- number one, service in the military. You know, coming out of high school, didn't want to go straight to college, went in the military, and the Army taught me something about teamwork, discipline, and leadership. If I'm not there 35, 40 years ago, I- I'm-, I'm not here today. So great place to be a kid and get slapped around and become an adult, you know, and be responsible and uh, and accountable to other human beings, you know, so take, take the military aspect out. It's just teamwork, leadership, discipline. From there, that led me to a career in engineering. Engineering made me a meticulous planner. And, and so I'm a pilot, I'm an engineer. That means there's always a strategic plan. If I went off camera for 30 seconds, I could bring you two strategic plans from two of the three companies I built. And we're talking 400 page books, you know, not, not, uh, you know, not, not short stories or cliff notes, but, you know, detailed strategic plans. We always need to be flexible, you know, things like great recessions and, and, and pandemics and war, you know, things can happen in life that we have to adapt to. But generally speaking, if we know where we're headed, we have a much greater likelihood of getting where, where, where we intend to go. And I think too many people in life uh, are just kind of spinning around, not really sure what the future is going to hold. You know, when you're running a company, Strategic planning is important. So I, I blame that on engineering first and then secondly on GE. Third, <laughs> GE. You know, so I spent 10 years at GE, first as an engineer, crossed over into business. But I call it the Camelot era of GE. So think about the world. Internet had not permeated you know, the planet yet. Tech companies don't exist. Um, people are just now getting computers you know, on their desktops voicemail is just coming into be email is just coming into be you know jack was at ge for 20 years the first 10 years he earned the moniker neutron jack you know and he was doing radical surgery on this old sleepy company but i was there during his last 10 years and his last 10 years were the camelot era those were the growth years so ge during the first 10 years he's restructuring it you know redeveloping it you know he's tinkering in the toy box last 10 years all about growth you know, I, I learned how to run a business from the world's most admired company. You know, I did the GE Crotonville experience back when leaders were still coming up the Hudson River and, and, and teaching, you know, teaching class. And, you know, stock was splitting every two and a half years. I was there 10 years, stock split every two and a half years. As a young guy, I thought money just rained from the sky and that was normal. Of course, <laughs> it never split again after I left, you know, and, and it, it's high watermark was really, you know, that last year uh, that, that I was there. So, you know, it was a magical time to learn how to run a business from the world's most admired company and leadership team and when they were still very much hands-on. So great time. So GE taught me how to run a company. And then the last thing is just the experience of having built three different platforms for eight different sponsors 
and you know, building two of them to billion dollar enterprise values. You know, over 21 years, I started as a CEO in my 30s. You know, and I, I, I've made so many mistakes over 20 years that it, it, you know sometimes there you can read a book, but sometimes there, there's experiential learning that takes place just from doing. And after 20 years, you become an expert in so many things that 20 years ago I didn't even know existed or were important. So that gave me the ex- experience to be where I am today, to be a better consultant, you know, to write the books and to, uh, you know, to, to, to be a more mature, well-rounded executive today, just because of the, the, those, those four things, put those four things together. You get a teamwork, you know, uh, you get a guy who's disciplined, you get a strategic planner, knows how to run a business and has spent 20 years doing it. Awesome. So I, I definitely, I mentioned, I, I warned you, I cautioned you, I wanted to get to, to drill into the, the GE Jack Welch kind of experience and your experience there, because uh, the tail end of your time at GE coincided with the, the beginning of my time at Johnson & Johnson in the late 90s. And when I joined J&J, everybody knew that GE and Jack Welch, GE was the company to watch. We were kind of modeling you guys to a degree. So we had the, the Six Sigma which from Motorola and GE. And then we also had the mantra that, that Jack Welch, I think, coined, which is you're either number one or number two in your industry or you get out, right? That, yep. that as well. And then um, just just to say as an observer, so in 1999, just to pick up, you know, you, you told the story, which was absolutely the case that GE was the model seen as the best run company in the U.S. and, and in the world. Uh, in, I think it was 1999, Fortune magazine named Jack Welch manager of the century. And they said uh, GE, he, during his 20 year tenure as chairman, CEO, Increased the market value from 12 billion in 1981 to 410 billion when he retired. And then this is one other little thing. They said uh, when he retired, he received uh, his uh, severance package was uh, later later turned out to be worth over 400 million dollars, which they said was the largest such payment in business history up to that point in terms of as a thank you to Jack for his service at GE. Now, uh, what I and, and the other thing that 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 I knew I was aware of contemporaneously at the time was that GE was known for developing leaders. And that's probably why you were snapped up by these PE firms. They knew where to go when they wanted to have proven leaders. But uh, picking up on uh, picking up on what you mentioned earlier about the sort of leadership, uh, I'm just curious how you go about creating that high performance culture when you you step in as a CEO for these companies. That and the other thing, sorry, I want to talk about as well is I know you you must have worked your tail off at GE. You were top five percent there. Seems like every year from what I saw on your LinkedIn and things, no mean feat in such a super competitive environment. Uh, you were working really hard and, and, and overachieving there. Then you step into private equity and you mentioned in the book that the pace is different than typical business people would be used to. So I'm just I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm curious to hear about what the leadership style that you developed there, particularly around how you create that high performance culture and engage employees. And then secondly, maybe if you just touch on the fact that what were some of the differences as you shifted from the corporate world then into the private equity backed world? So the, the, I think, I think the, the first key to that is, you know, again, go back to the military. I'm a servant leader, take the hill, follow me. So I, I'm, I'm going to build credibility with a leadership team by being shoulder to shoulder with that leadership team, not barking orders from on high and expecting things to happen. And because I started at the bottom, you know, and I call my, myself a blue collar CEO and work my way up, you know, I, I also remember the guy in the trench, you know, and so I build relationships with line employees in every company I've ever worked in. And I call that my informal feedback loop. So when I'm up on high and I'm, I am working with a leadership team and, and shoulder to shoulder, but we're, we're trying to, to 
impact things. I'm mindful that sometimes teams tell you what you want to hear. And so I'm validating what I'm hearing from a team by having relationships with line employees and, and developing friendships with, with, with some line employees. And I get that feedback loop. So, you know, I, this is what I'm hearing. Yep. The feedback loops tuned in. Oftentimes I can also pick up on problems earlier because I'm seeing the noise and the smoke at the line employee level and it hasn't yet permeated its way up to my office. So, you know, I, I mean, GE and the military taught me to be a hands-on leader. I mean, one of the, the I think the biggest, you know, lessons from, from the Jack era was, you know, when you're a, a CEO or an executive, there, there are a thousand distractions that come at you every day. And it's about being focused on a handful of strategic initiatives, making sure that there are measurement systems in place that can allow you to know whether or not the action you're taking is having an impact. If you can't measure it, it doesn't get done. Forget about it. Focus on that that can be measured and make sure you have metrics, make sure there are owners of these initiatives and then empower them, work with them. And so, you know, that's a little bit, I, I, I guess, on, on the process, but, but just GE in general, you know, in, in that era, you know, taught you to be a strategic thinker, a strategic planner, to work on a handful of initiatives, to make sure there were measurement systems in place, to make sure that you built a team of talented people who could help you. And so when you're at GE, there are so many talented people around you. The, the talent level as, a, as an officer you know, or as a general manager or hire, there is so much talent around. Sometimes you you can actually take that for granted. When you step out of that Fortune 500 world and you get into a lower middle market world, you don't have that same level of talent necessarily around you, which means that you have to eat, you have to develop, you have to work to develop the people that you have, sometimes augment that with additional talent coming in from the outside or the use of a, uh, of a consulting firm to, to help bring expertise that you don't have. Uh, and so I, th I think you have to be a little bit more patient as a teacher and mentor when you step out of the Fortune 500 world, step into the middle market world. You know, we always joke when you're in middle market and you're hiring Fortune 500 executives, there's really two kinds. There's the kind that needs to have a, a huge team of people around them to be successful. And then there's those who can still roll up their shirt sleeves and get a little dirty and, and get the work done. And, and the latter is what you're looking for, not the former. You don't have in a middle market company the depth of resources to bring in 30 people with that general manager, you know, in order for the general manager to be successful. So they have to be a, a servant leader and coach and mentor, but yet have that that acumen to 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 change the way business is done in that smaller firm so that ultimately again you can go back to we need to bend that curve you know improve and, and increase the growth rates in order to hit a return threshold so i think those are kind of the key components and i think ge certainly you know from my perspective just as i said with the military if i'm not there i'm not here if i'm not a ge i'm not here right great Okay, so now I think we'll, with all that scene setting and background, I think we'll, we'll segue now into kind of the core of the book and the, the sorts of the, the uh, lessons that can be gleaned from, from your time working as a CEO of private equity held companies. So the, I guess initially you talked about how you, how you find the right team to work with. You, I love the sports analogy, the metaphor throughout the book uh, in terms of, so you talked about the uh, if you're looking to join one of these firms how do you actually 
assess one, make sure that the fit is right between you and them. And then once you have that, that's to talk about that a bit. And then that what I want to spend a bit of time on is the, the actual deal structure. So when you are stepping out, let's say you're stepping out of a Fortune 500 firm, or if you are the, in the CEO running a mid-market company yourself that's looking to sell to private equity, what's the, I was fascinated to read in the book. I've seen lots of different deal structures, but just the way the, the playbook that you ran and the blueprint that you outlined here about how you can build great businesses and build generational wealth for yourself along the way. So maybe we can talk about how you how you can assess the, the firm that you're going to partner with and then talk about actually the sort of deal that you strike with them to make sure that you're you're you're, you're both uh, mutually rewarded for the success of the endeavor. Yeah, you know, so so I think alignment is key all up and down the food chain in, in the world of private equity. Private equity is not buying businesses. They're buying, you know, management teams. They're backing management teams. They want outsized growth because their limited partners have entrusted with them large amounts of capital and they owe them a return. In order to do that, uh, private equity creates alignment. Our success is going to be your success. And so there are, you know, it, it, and you, we touched on this and, and I, I forgot to address just, you know, how do I build a team and align interest? You know, yes. one of the, I think the, the best day of my career is, you know, the, the day a sale has taken place. And, you know, I got a bunch of executives sitting around in their rooms privately. They're not admitting this, but they're doing it. And they're hitting, you know, enter on the keyboard, you know, in their bank account, waiting for the wires to hit. And then the wires hit. And, and you know, you, you see people who look at their bank account for the first time and they're, they're now multimillionaires. And, and they're like, wow, you know, wow. I mean, that, that's the, 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 the word that comes to mind. And so I, I like to think that in my career, there is a wake behind me of people who have generated, you know, millions of dollars, you know, for themselves, for their families, you know, and, uh, yeah, and, and that to me, that's the, that's the magic of, of private equity when things go well. And so a private equity firm wants to align interests. There's a place where capital comes in to uh, buy the company. Management's always afforded an opportunity to write a check. Our checks are typically smaller, obviously, than the, the private equity firms, but there's still mm -hmm. an ability to, to participate in the equity instrument. Uh, if there's a preferred yield, get a preferred yield. You know, if not, you know, to, to just be an equity investor yourself. But then, in addition to that, there's an incentive equity structure that's put in place, and once the the original equity is returned to the people who provided you know the the financing to buy the buy the company the debt's paid off the equity is returned then you know have some type of a waterfall structure where management now may have 10% of the the next class of stock and then over a certain return threshold they may have 25% of the next class of stock and then as a ceo you're literally looking at the organization and you're doling out portions of this incentive equity so that there's a ripple effect as as money is earned for selling the company it's water falling across the different classes of stock and into into different people's hands one of the things i've always been known for is i usually take less than a ceo is entitled to in a, in a normal structure because I want more people in the organization to be owners. And, and so I, I create a sense of alignment and a sense of ownership in an organization. You know, so I think in my last company, I think I had 70 some odd shareholders, you know, who all held equity, incentive equity. And then the private equity firm was so generous that, that they actually allowed us to give 
grants that look like stock, track stock, but for tax reasons and IRS reasons couldn't. And we had we were adding like 100 employees per year to, to a, a, an option plan mm-hmm. and a pool. Very, very generous people. Most private equity firms I find to be extremely generous when they can hit their modeled threshold. And so all up and down the line, you're building incentive plans to align management. When you're a founder and you're selling, it's important to continue to keep your interests aligned. And and oftentimes that's done through a rollover investment where an entrepreneur may sell the company for, let's use $10, but they take $7 home and they roll $3 forward. And the magic to me of of creating generational wealth is getting multiple bites of the apple. And, And if you're an entrepreneur or a founder, most people think of an exit as being a one and done event, you know, and, and that's the first mistake. You know, why leave, you know, the empire you've already created, the empire you already know, because the first thing you have to do is figure out, OK, well, I got a pile of money. Now what? Where am I going next? Stay where you're at. Take some chips off the table, diversify your assets, but keep enough going forward so that if there's a four times multiple of invested capital achieved on the rollover investment, you want your second check to be bigger than the first check. And, and so my record, five multi-million dollar paydays running one company in 13 years and four months. And, and you know, the power of rollover investing compounds, you know, and, and so for me, even to this day, you know, after 21 years of being a CEO, I'm, uh, I'm doing buy and builds. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to entrepreneurs all the time. Even now as a board member, I'm, I'm, I'm helping people do buy and builds and I'm still talking to entrepreneurs almost daily. I've got a, a meeting later today with one and I'm educating them on the value of rollover investing, the reason why they would want to be a rollover investor. Uh, because most entrepreneurs I encounter say, hey, one and done. If I sell the company, I want all my chips off the table. And if I'm not running it and I don't own it, then I don't want to be an investor in it because I'm so sophisticated at everything I do, you know, that it's just not the place for me anymore. And, and I tell them, hey, look at life differently. These are the world's most sophisticated investors on the planet. There's a reason the asset class has gone from a trillion to five trillion, you know, over the last 20 years. And there's a reason there's 6,000 firms out there doing this. They're very good at what they do. And you get a chance to ride their coattails and, and be a piece of that action. And so I have, a, I have different presentations I go through in models where I use real life examples of people that I've worked with that they can pick up a phone and call if they want to, to understand how someone who sold me a business for 16 million then got a second payday, you know, that was, that was larger than the first and then a third payday that was larger than the second and in totality across multiple bites, a company they would have been completely satisfied selling for a one and done price wound up getting three times that action, you know, over a five to eight year period. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of uh, opportunity to be, you know, something special in the world when you're working with, with private equity. And again, because of the, the mid market nature, the size of the businesses, the wealth is, is spread across so many people that it, it, it's, it's a very powerful environment. Matter of fact, today, you know, if, if someone said, Adam, you can come be, you know, a, a, a CEO or a senior executive in a Fortune 500 company, or, or you could be a middle market PE back CEO, where would I spend my time? You know, I, I, it's so much easier to take a company with 15 million of EBITDA and make it 50 
or 50 and make it 100 than it is to take 100 and make it 200. It's harder to take a billion dollar company and make it a $2 billion company than it is to make a $250 million company a $500 million company. So there's this sweet spot, I think, in middle market where you're building company from 100 million up to a billion, you know, kind of in revenue or, or, or enterprise value where mm-hmm. things can move quick. You can get in and out. The last company I ran, I was there for 27 months and got a four times multiple of invested capital. So, you know, if I can do that in 27 months, boy, across a 20 year career, you know, can I have some more of that, please? Right. And just, just to clarify for some of the, some of the audience. So when you mentioned, let's say that you were involved in that first exit, let's say that you are in the management team, the CEO of the, port, the private equity portfolio company, and then that, that fund sells the business to another fund. During that time, if you are, you have a certain deal where you're, you're, you receive some of the proceeds from that sale. When you say roll, take 34 cents or take a third of it and roll it forward, you're essentially taking that payout and then investing forward in shares of the company to, to run to run that again, run that growth curve again, right? I, I, you know, and to use the sports analogy, I think of it as you just completed one championship season, you and now you're retooling a bit, you know, over the off season, and you're getting ready to come back on the field and do it, you know, play again, going for another championship. And, and so, uh, going back to where we started, I see private equity as a tool. Sometimes they see me as a tool. Um, when you're building a company, in my mind, I'm always building a billion dollar business. That's what I'm doing, and. Along the way, I may have two or three private equity sponsors because private equity is a very disciplined place. People are, are very disciplined in that they buy companies of one size, they sell them when they get to another size, and then they hand them off to another set of private equity guys who take it from that size to another size. And people are very much um, segmented in what part of the market they serve. And as a result of that, if I'm going to run the company for a 10-year period and I'm building a multi-billion dollar empire, I'm probably going to have multiple hold periods with different shareholders. People get a little confused, and I try to use a public company analogy. A public company is bought and sold every day. I can buy, I can buy shares in a, in, 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 a, in a firm that's publicly traded. I can hold it for five minutes or for, for five years, and I can sell it anytime I want. There's always liquidity available. Private capital is private. And so because you can't buy and sell it every day, it's a typical hold period is about five years. Fun life is 10 years. Uh, and, and so as a result of that, there's fewer transactions. They're happening years apart rather than thousands of times a day. Um, but it's a similar it's a similar situation. So, you know, it, it, it's as a, a person, I'm, I'm not looking at a five-year hold period. I'm looking at building a multi-billion dollar business but I'm going to break that down into different individual five-year hold periods with multiple sponsors. Okay. Every That's- time a new sponsor comes in, there's a new cap structure, a new opportunity to be an investor. Okay, great. That's a, that's a really helpful way to frame it. So on that note, so there, there are different uh, schools of thought in, in the industry out there in terms of how you continue to incentivize, let's say, founders or management teams during this process. So for example, if, if, uh, if a founder or a company owner is, uh, agrees to sell the company, then uh, signs some sort of an earnout sort of deal, they, they, they go from being an owner or and the top, their own boss, to then having a boss. And then there's a bit of an adjustment there if they go from you know, being an entrepreneur to being an employee, per, let's say. That can, that can happen. And sometimes in the industry, uh, those deals, 
sometimes entrepreneurs don't like to go back in and put what they see as feeling like the, the employee hat on. But you, you found a way maybe and you, you conceptualize it differently. But, you know, when those new owners come in, there is a risk that they may fire the existing management team for whatever reason. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened to you because you're outperforming. But how, how do you in your experience with what, with what you live and with the other companies you work with and advise, how do you keep an owner or uh, someone who was an entrepreneur who then brings on outside sponsors who then become the owners of the company or a controlling stake, at least, and then now who was once an owner is now in almost like an employee mode? How do you motivate them then? So, so it, it, these are really good points and concepts, and it's why so many people out there you encounter will say private equity is great or private equity sucks. It depends on what their you know initial experience was, um, you know, as a seller, you know, as, as a person who who built an empire and sold it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a lot of times it just has to do with the disconnect. So, first of all, private equity never replaces a CEO that's performing. You know, and I was joking online, you know, recently that a quarter just ended and now my phone's ringing off the hook with CEO jobs because we're early in the next quarter. So I know there's a handful of companies that probably are disappointing or, or not performing and, you know, there, there's changes being made. So it does happen. This is a professional sport. You know, you're now playing in a professional sport. If you're a pitcher, you got to win baseball games. You know, if you're a midfielder, you better be setting up that 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 forward is going to score goals, you know, and so there's a, a now a responsibility. And so I think where the disconnect comes when it comes is when an entrepreneur does not grasp or understand what the game is that's being played. So you were growing at a good clip. It was good enough for you. You were happy, but now you're owned by institutional capital and they need to bend the curve, amp up the growth rate, and they're expecting you to step up to the plate. Now, I don't know how magically you're supposed to know this as an entrepreneur. I guess you read my book, you know, and that's where I'm trying to lay it out. But when you don't get it and you don't move fast enough, then the private equity firm is not set up to return the amount you know, of capital that they've modeled back to limited partners who've invested their money into this firm and therefore changes need to be made. So I I think a part of this educational process is to really truly educate the entrepreneurs who are are transitioning from sole owner to now leader and partial owner, minority owner, is to really understand what does that mean and what has to happen in order to find success. And so Oftentimes, you know, as a, as a CEO coach or mentor, I'm working with people who are making that transition for the first time and I'm preparing them. Look, the game's going to change here. Here's what we need to do in order for you to be successful. And so I, I also have called myself a den mother, you know, to, uh, you know, when I'm doing a buy and build, mm-hmm. um, you know, the last buy and build I did, you know, so you buy 21 companies, you have 21 entrepreneurs who are still in the organization. None of them have ever had a boss before. You're putting saddles on on wild horses and you got to get them all pointed in the same direction and, and singing from the same hymnal. And what I do is you, you go back to alignment, you use rollover investing to make sure everyone has financial incentive that's compelling enough to keep them engaged. And when you can do that, then transparency is how I as a leader deal with this. I, I meet with those group of, of former founders often I actually call it the former owners alumni club and you know and we get together to talk about the business and private equity is this thing it's out there but the leaders in the room we're the ones who determine what the trajectory of the business is what we're going to do tomorrow we run it 
And so as long as we are, are achieving our goals and objectives and feeding the need of private equity, no one's coming from outside these four walls and going to tell us how to do this. And, and, uh, and when you do this correctly, you educate the entrepreneurs. The rollover investment is, a compelling, you know, is of compelling enough interest to them to where oftentimes you know, a, lot, a lot of these companies I buy, the, the people aren't ready to retire. You know, they may be in their 50s you know, or late 40s you know, to 60s. And it's like, we're not ready to hang it up. I'm just getting nervous because I'm getting older and I want to diversify assets, but I'm not ready to hang up my cleats. So I got to create an environment where they can thrive and they understand it. And when they understand the game, th then they can dig in and, and play it. So the mystery comes from a lack of education. And is there, I hear you on that. I think there's also, you tell me in your experience, there's also a bit of the Jim Collins getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus and getting those on the bus in the right seats and all that. Because I'm sure there are some people who just opt out and say, look, I'm entrepreneurial minded. If I'm no longer the boss, and I don't have the authority that I'm, I'm best served somewhere else. But those who decide to stay, they, they need to understand that they're on the same hymn sheet. This is the, the new playbook. This is how it's going to work. Am I right? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Think, think about when, when I, if I've run a company for 13 years and three sets of shareholders, and I've gone from, you know, 30 million of EBITDA to 125, you know, in an enterprise value of a billion or more, the skill set required at these different stages may be different. And so I'll go right back to I'm the manager of the baseball team or, or the soccer club. And, you know, I'm, you know, to win the championship this year, I have a team on the field. Oftentimes, I'll have a core group of people that I'm building around. But my cast of supporting players may change a bit from year to year in order to stay on top of, you know, the league and, and to be in contention for a championship every year. I'm having to retool. And then periodically, I may have to retool my core you know, and, and make some changes, you know, where, where the, the players, you know, are, are, are at the end of their capability or at the end of their runway in, in professional sports, it's usually because of age, you know, it could also be mental attitude and, and in business, it's, it's seldom the age part. Usually it's the business has outgrown the skill set. So I try to invest in my people along the way, but at the beginning of each hold period is the best time to, to kind of regroup, uh, and retool and to ascertain, you know, there's 20 key seats on the bus that are going to take me from this place to that place in terms of revenue and, and earning size. Do I have the right people in the right seats, you know, at the right place? And, you know, last time I did a major retool, it was interesting because what we identified was in like the top 25 positions in the company, nine of the positions that we needed to be successful didn't exist. We needed to go out and hire nine new executives to field nine different spots. And, and mind you, I just got done with a three-year hold period and a four times multiple of invested capital and everybody's thrilled, but I needed to add nine different kinds of executives in roles that didn't exist in the previous hold period in order to hit the, the goals and objectives of, of the coming hold period. So I, I think... Life is dynamic. It's changing all the time. It's never static. Same thing with companies as they're growing. And so, yes, human capital and, and talent is a key to success in any organization. And just like GE, you know, or you, Johnson & Johnson, you got to earn your seat every year. It's right. not one and done. 
you know, no one remembers the championship ring from five years ago. They want the, they want the championship this year. And so at GE, my goal and objective every year starting out was if I want to remain in the top 5% of General Electric, how am I going to do that? How am I going to add value, you know, and not live on previous, you know, previous successes, but I got to reinvent myself every year. And one of the things that always frustrated me about the Fortune 500 world was about every 18 months, you got a new boss. And it's like they were moving up every 18 months and you had to then prove your worth to the incoming person. And and so in the world of private equity, again, you have these different hold periods. The companies are growing exponentially in size, sometimes new talents needed, uh, sometimes education's needed, but, but there are times where you have to make a change. Absolutely. Well, Adam, I know we're coming, we're coming towards the, the end of the hour. I know we've got a hard stop soon. So just wanted to, there's lots more we can, we could get into, uh, just kind of wrapping up. So what, what are some things that you know now that you wish you knew 20 years ago, which starting out and uh, kind of what, what are you most enthusiastic about now? What's next for you? <laughs> you know, as I, as I think about what I wish I would have learned 20 years ago yeah. and knew now is just understanding the importance of of growth and bending the curve and taking a sleepy organization, understanding the key levers, uh, you know, increasing organic growth, making strategic pivots, including pricing, you know, and and then margin improvement, you know, going back to our Six Sigma roots and Lean Sigma, if you're a manufacturing person, you know, just trying to become more efficient. And then the inorganic components or the importance of, of merger and acquisition activity to growth. Yes. And, you know, had I understood that better 20 years ago, I, I think I would have had more success than I, I did have. And, and so I try to lay that out in the book. You know, for me, what's next, it's really working with multiple CEOs at a time. And instead of impacting one company uh, and building one culture, it's really being a, a guide and, uh, and steward to five or six companies at a time, five or six CEOs, teach them those lessons that I've learned over 20 years, help them be more successful playing the private equity game. You know, that, that, that's what's next for me. Fantastic, Adam. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? And how can, how can we follow and keep in touch with you? LinkedIn, look me up, Adam Coffee. Like the drink, but spelled differently, as Stephen King said. Uh, C O F F E Y. So Adam Coffee on LinkedIn, uh, AdamEcoffee.com. You know, is another place you can find me. I talk to people all the time from all across the globe. It's uh, always a lot of fun. So thank you very much, uh, Carl, to you and your listeners. It's been uh, it's been fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, all the best. Take care. Thank you. Bye. That's all for this episode. Tune in next time for the latest insights and hidden gems from the world of business. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. For any feedback, suggestions, or questions you'd like us to cover, you can email us at krego at lxauk.com and on LinkedIn at karl-rego. Until next time, onwards and upwards. And thank you for listening. Rego's Review, signing off.